Was there some encouragement for you parents in the room who feel like your kids never listen to you and never remember anything you tell them? If you tell them enough, they'll remember for like ever, as David still remembers all of chapter 20. That was really wonderful. Um, my name's Nick. I'm the associate minister here at Knox. And um, yeah, if it's your first time joining us for worship, a special welcome to you today. As you've heard, it's our final week in our summer series on the Ten Commandments. And if you've been joining us along the way, I hope that you've become more familiar with them and come to appreciate them more deeply. Maybe you didn't know them at all when we started this series, and now, like some of our friends in the video, you can mostly remember most of them most of the time. Or maybe you've known them since childhood, like David, and you've been able to sit with them and consider them more deeply and intentionally over the last few months. And if this is your first week joining us, um, don't worry, it's okay, because this 10th commandment in many ways helps us to remember and to learn some of the core lessons of all the rest of them as well. In George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, he coins this term, thought crime. Thought crime is thoughts which the state has made illegal to have. Just having these thoughts is a crime. It's an absurd and frightening idea in that book, and it's a world that I think we could all agree none of us really want to live in or to know. And yet it seems in the Ten Commandments that God may have beaten Mr. Orwell to the punch. You shall not covet. To covet is simply to desire something. And in this commandment, God speaks against the disordered desire to long for something which is not ours. It's not a commandment against theft. That's already been told to us. It's not a commandment against adultery. We've already heard that one too. This is a commandment against the distorted desires of our hearts. The thoughts and the feelings of covetousness. This commandment makes plain that even our thoughts can be sin. The British biblical scholar, um, Dr. David L. Baker, points out that this is also unique among Israel's neighbors at this time. Some other cultures believed that covetousness was foolish, and others acknowledged its existence when they made illegal the theft of goods. But here it is the act of coveting itself, the thought of desiring that which is not yours, that is forbidden. And more than forbidden, it's resoundingly forbidden. This comes after a litany of really simple things. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. And then we have a paragraph. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's male or female slave, ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Resoundingly, resoundingly forbidden. The command is repeated for emphasis. Specific examples are offered, and then a catch-all is provided at the end. Was Israel living in a dystopic nightmare? Is the God of Israel so intrusive as to outlaw even the thoughts which enter our mind? Of course, we already know that our thoughts do matter. There's been this progression as we've considered the latter half of the Ten Commandments from things that we ought not ought to do or ought not to do. Honor our elders, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal. To things we ought not say, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, 
And now, something we ought not think. Do not covet anything which is your neighbor's. But all along, we've been challenged by the words of Jesus to consider not only the action as a breach of God's will for us in the world, but also the sinful disposition of our hearts, which bear the bitter fruit of evil action. More than simply not murdering, we considered how anger is the root of murder and a sin against our neighbor. More than simply not cheating on our spouses, we considered how lust is the heart of adultery, and even a lustful thought, Jesus says, is adultery at heart. But this is not abstract. This is not Jesus extending the law. The law itself is about a forbidden thought. The commandment against coveting indicates that our thoughts matter to God, not only if they lead to sinful action, which many of them do, but even just for the simple fact that they corrupt our hearts. They make us other than what we have been called and created to be. As we heard in the reading from Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, Jesus says, and he highlights the ultimate futility of that task. And then he concludes, for where your treasure is, there your, your heart will be also. Yet so often our hearts do long for the earthly treasures of another, for their house, for their family life, for their car or their disposable income, their vacations, and so much more. Instagram is just a plethora of covetousness, isn't it? How awful to have many earthly treasures and for your heart to remain with them. But how much more awful to see the earthly treasures of your neighbor and to have your heart be in your neighbor's house. Coveting that which is not ours is a hamster wheel of desire. We'll never achieve enough, never have enough, never check enough boxes to be satisfied. Jesus says no earthly thing will satisfy in the book of Colossians, Paul makes clear that greed and covetousness are idolatry. And if we think back to the first couple of commandments, to have no God but God and to not make for ourselves any idols, we might remember that God doesn't get into the fray of whether or not other gods are real. God could have said, I am the only God. But instead, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Because the important point which God was making was that he is the only God we need. God reminds the Israelites that the gods of Egypt, they wanted their enslavement. Even if they're real, they're no good for them. But he is the God who set them free, the only God that is worthy of their worship. Even if there are a thousand other gods, this God is the God that we should desire before all others. And now, at the 10th commandment, more than just saying we don't need any other gods, we are reminded that we don't need to desire anything other than what God has given to us. That God's provision for our lives is all the provision that we need. What do these poor Israelites have to covet from their neighbors? They've just escaped slavery together. 
They are all fed by God with bread and quail. There is not great economic disparity at the time that this commandment is given within the Israelite community. What could they have coveted so early on? Well, we heard them. They remembered their neighbor Egypt, that they had lots of pots of meat that they used to sit around and enjoy. How lovely it was to have a full stomach all the time. And later on, they noticed that all their neighboring nations had kings, but they only had judges. Why couldn't they have a king? The other nations seemed to have it better. The other nations' gods seemed to have provided for them more fully. Implicit in the coveting desires of Israel's hearts is the suggestion, God, what you provided, it's not enough. God, you're not a good enough God for all that I need, for all that I deserve, for all that I desire. But once again, the things we need are the things which God gives to us. Jesus puts it in this way, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Aha! We've been redirected We've been redirected away from desiring that which is our neighbor's and toward desiring that which is our father's. Don't desire your neighbor's household. Desire your father's kingdom. Don't desire your neighbor's life. Desire your Lord's justice. Don't worry about what you need or what you've convinced yourself that you need. Worry about seeking God's face and trusting God's care for you. Because God does care for you, you who are worth more than many sparrows. St. Augustine, who was a North African bishop in the late 4th and early 5th century, he reflected on this 10th commandment in a sermon, and he says, to save me from saying a lot, and to save me from saying a lot too, among other commandments, the 10th commandment contains, you shall not covet your neighbor's property. Don't covet. Don't go up and down in front of that country house belonging to someone else and sigh because it is such a fine one. Do not covet your neighbor's property. The Lord's is the earth and its fullness. What haven't you acquired if you've got hold of God? So don't covet your neighbor's property. We are heirs of God and we're co-heirs with Christ, the scriptures say. And so Augustine challenges all of our covetous thoughts by simply asking one question. If you've got hold of God, what haven't you acquired? The earth is the Lord's. You are a child of God. 
What have you to covet? What is there more to desire? To have God is to have the desire of our hearts, is to have the purpose of our creation satisfied. And this is the testimony of the scriptures. The psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And later, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Do we believe these things? If we do, why should we long for our neighbor's treasure? In Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah writes, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is our portion, an inheritance too good for words and a treasure beyond all reckoning. Let us wait on the Lord, our eyes fixed not on our neighbor's fields, but on God's better kingdom. We sang, when we taste God's goodness, we shall not want. Is it true? Did we mean what we sang? Because if it's true, we have no need to covet. Because we have no need of want, we know the goodness of our God. Coveting comes from the belief that our life would be better, happier, more complete, if only we had what our neighbors have. Perhaps if we were who our neighbor is. But the testimony of a life lived with God is that God is sufficient for us. That the kingdom of God is our heart's greatest desire. That God provides for all of our needs out of his riches and glory. And to covet anything of our neighbors undermines that testimony. Instead of saying that, it says, you know what? God didn't give me the life that would have been ideal for me. God didn't give me the gifts, the talents, the station in life which I would have chosen for myself for my flourishing. This is a lie that we believe that distances us from the truths of who God is and who we are in him. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That we are cared for by a loving God that whatever we have or do not have has been given to us or withheld from us for our good and for our Father's glory. We have to believe that God is enough for us, that God's provision is sufficient for us to rid ourselves of the sin of coveting our neighbor's possessions. The antidote to covetousness is contentedness. To be content with what we have, whether we know plenty or we know want, in whatever circumstances. And some of us do know want, and this is a challenge to not covet what others have when we really do feel that we don't have enough, when we perhaps go hungry or cannot provide for our children. But many of us gathered here know plenty, And part of contentedness in plenty is charity. The 10th commandment comes after the 8th commandment, which Francis reminded us not to steal means also not to withhold from others what God has given to us to share with them. The rich covet far more than the poor. 
And the antidote to that is contentedness. To be content with what we have and perhaps less than what we have so that others' needs can be met by God's hand working in us. And how? How can we be content in our circumstances? Through him who gives us strength. Through him who gives us strength. He who gives us strength is the one who is content in the heavenlies, but for our sakes came to us that we might know his better way and experience life to the full. The Son of God who enjoyed the presence of the Father did not covet our estate, did not so desire life on earth that he left the heavenlies, did not desire our sorrows, did not covet what we had, but rather he had mercy on us, came to be among us and bring God's kingdom near to us. In his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we have seen the glory of God and we have been offered a better hope. In the strength of the spirit which Christ gives, we can persevere in hope, not for earthly comfort or treasure, not for the things that we see others have, but for the city where we will see God face to face and enjoy God's provision unhampered by sin, sorrow, and death. When we began this series, we talked about how we don't like the concept of God's law because many of us have been formed by a culture that values freedom almost above anything else. Freedom to be who and whatever we desire, maybe with the one caveat that nobody gets hurt. But the truth of the matter is that these commandments were for the purpose of making Israel free. And the kingdom that they point us to is the only place where we will be completely free. When the fetters of sin will be removed from us, when our heart's desires will no longer default to something that we don't really want. This prohibition against coveting frees us to be who God created us to be, not who sin compels us to be, not who advertisers tell us we should be, not who sickness constrains us to be, not to simply be our parents and not to inhabit the world of our neighbor either, but to live as ourselves in the lives which God has given to us. We are freed to be content as we are, content as God comes to us, content with the kingdom as it is being revealed, and covetous only of that full revelation of the new heavens and the new earth, when we will join in Christ's inheritance and enjoy all that God has made, unmarred by darkness or pain. May we all seek that kingdom first, putting aside all other longings, until the day when our Lord returns and our desires are fully met in him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder how the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you in the words of that commandment and in the words of Jesus. And so we want to leave time for you to reflect, to listen more acutely to the Spirit without me maybe talking over it. And so there are a couple of questions to um, prompt conversations if you're at home, journaling perhaps throughout the week, and reflection and prayer right now. 
The first is, what are the honest desires of your heart today? Be truthful. It's just you and God. What are the things you've been longing for, coveting that another has, desiring before God's kingdom? And then secondly, pray that God would show how he is sufficient for you and cause you to long for that better kingdom. We'll give you a couple of minutes to do that now.